Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. And today we are lucky enough to have Polina Anakeva with us. And, and what she's working on is quite fascinating. She's an associate professor at MIT and she obtained her PhD in materials science and engineering at MIT and did her postdoc at Stanford. And now she's head of the bioelectronics group at MIT. So her research is focused around hybrid materials and devices that act as interpreters between man-made electronics and neural circuits. And I'll let her describe how they're doing this. Uh, her research is focused around the neural system and working on devices that both record and man manipulate the neural system. And the, her research has three focus areas around tissue engineering, flexible fiber probes, and nanomagnetic medicines. So I invited Polina on the show because it seems like bioelectronics is the future of medicine. And I don't know enough about it. I'm sure you don't either. So I'm excited to hear more about what she's working on and her vision for the future. So Polina, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks Dave for inviting me. I'm looking forward to sharing a little bit of uh, uh, work that my lab has been doing in the past few years. Definitely. And, and before we jump into that, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up? Sure. So I'm um, ethnically Russian, as you can all figure out from my name, and I grew up in St. Petersburg. My uh, undergraduate degree was in physics, and then um, I spent a year working in the Los Alamos National Lab in optoelectronics, actually in solar cells. And then I went to MIT to do my PhD in material science. My advisor was electrical engineer, and what I worked on was light-emitting devices using nanomaterials and organic materials. So if you know about OLED, this is very similar to what I did for my PhD. You can see those really beautiful TVs mm. now. And uh, in the end of my PhD, I felt that, you know, contributing the next iPhone display to society was not uh, my ultimate aspiration. And uh, I wanted to do something that didn't exist. And biology seems like a really interesting place to start. And neuroscience attracted me right away because um, neuroscience deals a lot with voltages and electrical signals from neurons. And I figured as somebody with a PhD in optoelectronics, I should be able to understand voltage. And um, I was really fortunate to get a postdoc job at Stanford uh, with um uh, neuroscientist Carl Dyserath, who at that time was busy inventing optogenetics, which some of you may have heard of, which is a method to stimulate neural activity with light. And that was a uh, wonderful uh, uh, situation for me because I was surrounded by neuroscientists that were all teaching me about the brain and nervous system in general. Um, and all I had to do is... Uh, develop a few laser setups and devices to help them record and uh, stimulate neural activity. So so what was one of the first devices that you developed to help record the neural activity? So when uh, when I was still at Stanford, I have built a very simple device called Optetrode, which essentially combined an optical fiber, a really normal uh, optical fiber that you can buy uh, that is used for telecom, and I used microwires that are metallic, which I essentially wrapped around the device uh, in the arts and crafts kind of manner. <laughs> and um, it was uh, it was very simple. You could assemble one in two and a half hours on the bench top. So no sophisticated technology there. 
but it allowed me to really prototype a concept of having multiple functional features inside one device. And then we were successful in using that device to record activity in freely moving subjects, stimulate activity during uh, behavioral tasks. So it turned out to be useful. But as I was developing those devices, it uh, struck me as this is an extremely inefficient way of making those structures because it was all, as I said, arts and crafts. Gotcha. And and so how did you, so you have this device, how, how do you attach it to the neural system to start gathering data? So if you, as with any invasive neural probe, if you have, let's say you want to record neural activity or you want to optically stimulate neural activity, and you have a device that in principle can do those things, you now have to implant it into the a region of interest in the nervous system. So if you're going into the brain, ultimately you need to, um, you know, uh, drill a small hole in the skull, uh, insert your device through directly into the brain, and then uh, fix it in place, and then you can connect your device to the computers and lasers and things like that. Um, if you're going into spinal cord, obviously you do the same thing, but not just, uh, you don't fix it to the skull, you fix it to the vertebrae, uh, and so forth. And I've always been curious, how, how do you know, like on the, on the brain, where to place it and, um, yeah, yeah, where to place it and, um, how long do you place it for and, yeah. Um, so those are all, uh, interesting technical questions and in, um, Depends, uh, again, on the system, but every uh, brain surgery, no matter what organism or model system you're working with, will be done by so-called stereotactic coordinates, which means every brain actually has an atlas associated with it. So in the case of uh, uh, model organisms, those atlases are are essentially identical, and every brain would be identical, and it will be identical to the atlas, so you know where a given brain region is, you can figure out its coordinates in three-dimensional space. And then uh, it's extremely precise. You're using micromanipulators to get your device into the correct area. Uh, if you're thinking about the human uh, in the future, how, let's say, neurosurgeons do those experiments, they would, in addition to having uh, those stereotactic maps and atlases, they will actually use MRI and image every patient to get their very specific atlas and very specific structure. Hmm. And and so the brain is essentially giving off what what type of signals are the brain is the brain giving off that you can measure? So uh most uh frequently um we measure electrical signals from the brain which is uh essentially fluctuations of voltages uh in the vicinity of neurons. So neurons, a neuronal membrane is under uh, under voltage, generally under negative voltage. And um, when a neuron is active, it um, that voltage will change from negative to positive in a very rapid, uh, uh, in a very short amount of time, so in approximately a millisecond. And that spike in voltage is called an action potential. And that action potential is accompanied by ionic fluxes in the vicinity of a neuron. 
in those ionic fluxes obviously result in the change of local potentials in outside neurons, and we can measure that. Mm. So, uh, we, so in, in this case, we are measuring uh, when, we, when we're measuring those electrical signals, we can measure both the, so the digital information, which is the action potentials, or action potentials that have been filtered by the capacitive membrane of the neuron because we're on the outside. But we can also measure the analog signals, which are the local field potentials that are more of a global information for many neurons acting together in ensembles. So that's electrical information, but in reality, neurons are, of course, constantly exchanging chemicals, and there's, as I said, ionic fluxes going on uh, in and out uh, of, of cells. And those uh, uh, that information is still much harder for us to measure. We cannot do it quite as, uh, as uh, uh, high for precision as we can do electrical information. However, people do make... Uh, devices that can record, for example, release of neurotransmitters, such as dopamine, um, look for the chemical signatures. People also measure calcium influx using optical indicators. But um, the, the, those are the main uh, sort of the main bits of information. And the the signals that, uh, and I'm just fascinated with this. We'll, we'll get more into your, the research you're doing now, but. Uh, the signals that you're measuring, you know, what what do those signals tell you? So, uh, electrical signals, if, if there are, if you're measuring action potentials, uh, the sheer, the presence of action potentials would mean that a given uh, group of cells is active and they are uh, busy firing those action potentials, potentially communicating with other structures, potentially receiving inputs or supplying information to uh, into a circuit. If we are measuring neurotransmitters, we are looking at the release of those chemicals, which can then be delivered to other neurons to, again, trigger another cascade of reactions uh, or um, get other uh, or initiate firing in other cells that are connected to uh, neurons that are now releasing those neurotransmitters. Hmm. So you could... and Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that. So you're, you're, you can pretty much measure activity or see what areas yes, are active. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, all right. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about what the, your current research. But I guess before we do, I was I was curious. I, I, I visited uh, St. Petersburg many years ago, and it's a, a quite a beautiful city. How, how was growing up in uh, St. Petersburg? Cold. Cold? I <laughs> was <laughs> really? Yeah, that's pretty funny. Uh, so it but it's a it's a beautiful city. Yeah. I have benefited from a, a world class education, and I got to live in a city with you know uh, one of the best art collections mm, and oh, yeah. uh, architectural collections, and a really rich cultural scene all around. And I also was very uh, um, lucky to get admitted into uh, a magnet math and science school, which was hmm. really formative for my education. Interesting. Yeah. The wait, Is that called the, the Hermitage? Is that what the... Uh, the, the Hermitage is the, uh, I would say, the biggest and the main museum in Russia, and it's in St. Petersburg. Yeah, so I remember visiting there, and there'd be this, you know, priceless works of art, and there'd be no security... And like you know, it's just yep. it's such a strange. It was awesome, but yeah, it's amazing what what what's there. That's for sure. 
All right. Well, um, I was just curious before we got too far. I wanted to ask about that. Uh, but yeah, could we let let's uh talk about some of your current research? Can can you uh, describe um the current projects you're working on? So, as you have mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, the lab has uh is three main directions uh in it and of course as we grow and develop those directions starts to branch out. But generally uh we're interested in the in ways uh in which we can record neural activity and manipulate it in the least invasive way possible in the most precise way possible. And uh we have approached it from a couple of different directions. So one thing that we got excited about is figuring out how can we match the mechanics of the nervous system and at the same time address its signaling complexity. And I will explain what I mean by all of that. So if you're thinking about uh, man-made electronics, uh, like a normal computer or your cell phone, you're generally thinking about silicon. And silicon... Uh, and those electronics are extremely sophisticated. We are talking about transistors that are on the order of nanometers in dimensions, which is like five thousandths of your hair. And they're very fast. So they can do um, billions of operations per second. The same, so, and this is what we have in our computers and cell phones. Uh, and those electronics are made on uh, silicon substrates that uh, are really hard and flat and rigid and um, really do not have this three-dimensional structure to them. At the same time, if you want to interface that type of electronics to the the nervous system, you have a problem because uh, the brain or the spinal cord are very soft. Mechanically, they're like pudding, so you can actually take a spoon to them. Hmm. And uh, if you're now trying to uh, introduce a device into the the tissue that has elastic properties of a knife and the tissue's elastic properties of a pudding, we have a lot of damage. And especially that is aggravated by the fact that all electronics have to be fixed to the bone in order to uh, have a stable interface, which means in the bone and the in the nervous system, or let's say the skull and the brain will move with respect to each other a little bit. The brain will move inside the skull a little bit every time you breathe or walk or you know, your heart beats. So now this really soft tissue fluctuates around the device. And if the device is fixed to the skull and it's rigid, then you are introducing this continuous chronic damage. And that, that results in the foreign body response and essentially scarring around the device uh, that comes from the supportive cells that are not neurons in, but are in the brain. And essentially they're trying to protect the whatever is left of neurons in the vicinity of the device from being damaged any further. And that insulating scar ends up rendering your device completely uh, useless. So if we want to try to combat that problem, uh, what we hypothesized is that we need to create a device that would be much softer than a conventional conventional electronics. At the same time, we are also dealing with complexity. So we, if we want to record neural information, we need electrodes, so something that can pick up voltage. If we want to stimulate neurons optically, we would need to bring optical wave guides or fibers. If we want to be able to infuse drugs or probe chemicals, we would need microfluidics. 
all of that needs to be there at the same time, working at the same time. So how can we miniaturize it to the point that it's soft and not damaging and yet can do all of those things? And the approach that we have uh, been exploring is uh, uh, inspired or I would say stolen from fiber photonics. And if you're thinking about um, like normal telecom, uh, it's all uh, all the uh, optical telecommunications are conducted through fibers, optical fibers that are uh, made out of silica, so glass, and they're uh, laying underneath the Atlantic and Pacific and basically responsible for internet. And um, the, the way those are made is that you start with a template of uh, let's say a fiber, and if you're thinking about normal optical fiber, it's a cylinder that has a core and a cladding that has slightly different glass, but their refractive index is slightly different. So, but the template will be large, an order of several feet in diameter, and then you heat it and you pull it. Uh, and then it, as you heat it and you pull it, you essentially stretch that fiber under, under uh, high temperature from this really large cylinder that is maybe a foot in diameter to something that is a few microns in diameter. And we, of course, don't work with something on that scale. We make uh, those templates and they called preforms much, much smaller. Ours are in order of about an inch in diameter or inch in the side. But the interesting thing about fiber processing is that it's compatible with many different materials. So you don't have to use glass. You can use whatever materials, let's say polymers, if you want to do best to be soft. You can use metals, low temperature metals. You can use uh, semiconductors, uh, really anything. As long as you design your preform, your template, in a way that all materials have similar melting or glass transition temperatures. So now we can go essentially into the machine shop uh, and define a structure of our desired future probe. But now it's going to be on the macro scale. So we can, let's say, introduce it to polymers that will act as a core and a cladding of a fiber. And around it, we can distribute conductive electrodes and maybe some microfluidic channels. All of that will be all included into one structure that is at this point about an inch uh, in diameter and maybe a few inches long. And then we can heat it and we pull it. And the features that used to be millimeters now become microns. But the cross-sectional geometry stays exactly preserved. But And now we have a kilometer of this hair-thin structure that at the tip has all the features that we needed to be able to interface with the nervous system across all those modalities. And uh, we have created those devices and we have implanted them into model organisms and uh, we're able to show that we can simultaneously record neural activity, stimulate it, infuse drugs all at the same time, all this one structure. And uh, we could do it in the brain, we can do it in the spinal cord, we can do it for extended periods of time. And when we are done and we extract our devices a few months later, uh, we barely can find a location where they were because huh. they have dimensions that are very similar to the tiny blood vessels inside the brain. And so as a result, when you're looking at the brain, you will be seeing a lot little holes from the blood vessels, and then there's a little hole from our device, and it becomes tricky to figure out uh, if it's a blood vessel or is a device. 
So we have to do a little bit of triangulation by calling it to figure out what is it. But uh, we're still working uh, on making our devices more biocompatible, making them smaller, introducing more features, increasing resolution, and so on. But the main idea is essentially make it large and then shrink it down. That's amazing. Well, yeah, I don't know they're that far along. So uh, you've you've done uh, animal studies with it so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. And, you know, what... uh, Well, I got lots of different questions here. I guess uh, my... um, my first one is, you know, what 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 do you see as the initial applications for those uh, flexible probes? Would it be more, more on a university research, um, or you know, what would you see kind of as the first, uh, um, eventually maybe human application? So right now it's the, it's a research tool. It is uh, uh, its primary application is to help our neuroscience colleagues to understand the workings of the nervous system, understand neural circuits, figure out ways we can manipulate circuits in the context of uh, even basic science, if we are studying particular diseases. Uh, And eventually we can use that knowledge to translate into therapies, but it's going to take um, a little while to, whenever there is a new device, it is always very challenging to, uh, make sure that it's you know safe and robust and is is uh, uh, sufficiently sophisticated to be used in human patients. And um, we are barely barely started at this point. We have uh, been around for about five years at MIT, so devices are still very young in a very prototypical state. So we need to do the due diligence before we can even dream about applying yeah. them to patients. Yes. I, I guess I won't come out for brain surgery and have one implanted yet. Maybe in a couple of years. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe for a few mm-hmm. more years. A few more years. Um, oh, so I was curious, how do those um, devices uh, communicate with the the outside world? You know, if you implant these in the brain and then put the, sew the brain back up, um, are are they wireless or are they are they uh, wired? So, not yet. So uh, we could at this point we have not added wireless backend electronics to them because we are largely a material science operation. But we are collaborating with electrical engineers who uh, hopefully will be able to help us to attach them to wireless backends. Right now everything is wired, so we have to plug in. You know preamplifiers and lasers into the device uh, for now, but I think it's only a matter of uh, engineering at this point. There's nothing Mm. fundamentally um, there's nothing fundamental about the structures why they cannot be wireless. It's just a matter of developing a more um, developing a cleaner backend. And how do these probes help other researchers um, you know, compared to what they're using before, can the probe stay in longer? Do they get better data or? Mm-hmm. So there's one is, a, uh, I think the first one is the, uh, the functions that they're able to perform. And uh, so far they have been one of the few, if not the only devices that can perform electrical, optical, and chemical, uh, functions at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, as a result, people can uh, use them in neuroscience experiments that demand those types of uh, manipulations. So if somebody, for example, wants to stimulate a neural activity and at the same time record the effects of that stimulation and then locally introduce a drug and see how the drug uh, affects the neural circuit, then our device can do that. And at the same time, it doesn't take a very large footprint. So you can have multiple of them and you can look at the communication between neural circuits. And we have done some experiments that are relatively simple in our own lab, looking essentially at local cortical dynamics. But we have colleagues that work at, uh, in more sophisticated problems, such as learning and memory and anxiety and um, you know, addiction and everything along those lines. Oh. Can because it's a um, does not leave quite quite a scar like the uh, traditional probes do. Can can you put more of these on somebody's brain or, or an animal's brain or spinal cord than you could before? Um, yes, uh, the lower footprint obviously allows you to introduce more of them less invasively and. If you can introduce multiple probes in multiple regions, you can do more sophisticated circuit studies, huh. for sure. Interesting. And wh- where do you want to take uh, the, f- the flexible probe? Like over the next five years, how do you want to see it developed and um, you know, additional features or yeah, what else do you want to do with it? So there's uh, multiple um, questions that we are interested in, in from an engineering perspective. One uh, is... Uh, is uh, developing devices that are better suited for spinal cord than what we have right now. So we have developed devices that can record neural activity and stimulate neural activity in the spinal cord. We are now uh, trying to get those devices uh, to, uh, I would say, record from greater numbers of neurons so we can start thinking about more prosthetic applications and uh, uh, and potentially think about developing devices that can bridge across severed spinal cord, even though we are nowhere close to that yet, but maybe, as you say, in five years, we'll start getting there from a technology perspective. And then from um, interfaces with the, uh, with the brain, we are thinking about how can we uh, potentially scale up to really uh, large numbers of recording channels and stimulation channels. So if right now we can maybe go to some tens of channels, we are thinking about how can we go to tens of thousands uh, without having a really significant footprint so we can Mm. really start capturing dynamics of large brain regions um, and creating uh, device uh, fibers or arrays of fibers that can really... uh, uh, and develop uh, brain regions in a way that uh, we can probe many, 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 many cells. So, and then, of course, we're also interested in the peripheral nervous system because uh, when you're thinking about bioelectronic medicines, this is where peripheral nervous system starts to play a very significant role because now you need to start thinking about how the nerves actually connect to peripheral organs. So, if you think that Placing a device in the brain is difficult. Placing a device, let's say, in the gut uh, sounds in, in extraordinarily challenging. So to design for that flexibility, and now there is also 
uh, other confounding factors like blood and immune response and all of those things. So designing for that complexity is uh, a very formidable uh, material science challenge. Mm. So that's uh, where we are at this thinking, but I'm sure uh, my students will come up with much better ideas in the <laughs> next five years. Yes, and that opened up a whole nother, um, a whole lot more questions right there. But we should probably talk about. I, I think that was the first one you mentioned that one of your first focus areas. And uh, can you tell us about the the other area that you're interested in right now? Yep. So, uh, so on the other side. So when we're thinking about fibers, we're still still thinking about relatively invasive devices. So there's still surgery is required and we still need to you know, drill holes in the bone in order to introduce the structure directly into the nervous system. So we are on the other side thinking, well, is it possible to potentially do neural manipulation and perform neural manipulation without having an invasive device? Um, and the way we started thinking about it recently is ultimately what one would need to do is find a modality or field that can penetrate deeply into the nervous system, into biological uh, uh, matter. And then we need to convert that field into something that biology can understand. So uh, if we start with the field, it turns out that uh, biological matter is transparent to alternating magnetic fields with really low amplitudes on the order of millitesla and really high frequencies uh, on the order of hundreds of kilohertz. Those types of fields, they're magnetic, they have no electrical component, negligible electrical component. They go through us without coupling to any of our biological processes, so they're completely transparent. So if we are transparent to them, then obviously our neurons do not react to them either. But what neurons do react to is heat. And uh, so if you're thinking about eating a habanero, the sensation that you experience in your tongue is burning pain. And the reason why it's, it feels burning is because the protein um, that senses capsaicin, which is the spice in the habanero, it uh, also senses heat. And the same protein, which is an ion channel on neuronal membrane, is present not only on in receptors in your tongue, it's also present uh, in your central nervous system. So in your spinal cord, it's actually one of the major players of the pain pathway, but it's also present in the brain. And of course, it's present in all the peripheral, uh, in, the, in the peripheral nervous system because you can sense that something's warm. So we thought that, well, if we uh, converted magnetic field into heat, then we should be able to modulate neurons locally. And we can do that by using magnetic nanoparticles. So uh, researchers in the field of cancer have been taking advantage of this phenomenon for a long time, and it's called magnetic hyperthermia. So if you have magnetic nanoparticles, they're made out of iron oxide, which is essentially a magnetic version of rust. And um, they're in the order of about one five thousandth of your hair, so in order of about 20 nanometers in diameter. They can synthesize them. Uh, they are benign. They're essentially like MRI contrast agents, and they're soluble in water or physiological fluids. And when, you, when they're 
if you look at them under electron microscope, you see little nanocrystals, but if you look at them just when they're dissolved in solution, it looks just like espresso, um, <laughs> like a brown, brown yeah. liquid. Okay. So now, it's you since it's a liquid, it can be injected uh, into a particular brain region. But, in, but when those particles are subjected to alternating magnetic fields, their magnetic moment tries to switch its direction to follow the direction of the field. And in that process, energy gets dissipated. It's called hysteresis. And that energy gets dissipated as heat. And that heat is local, so only the neurons that are right in the immediate vicinity of the particles will experience those local, that local heat. And uh, in the case of cancer, people used to use that heat for essentially killing tumor cells and really heating them really significantly. In our case, we are developing materials that are very efficient, so we have to apply very short pulses so we don't damage anything, but instead have really short temperature increases that are enough to trigger neural activity because neurons are sensitive uh, to heat. So now you can imagine uh, having a a subject and uh, injecting those particles in the very particular region uh, in the nervous system within that subject, the brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves, uh, and then applying alternating magnetic field to an entire subject who is not going to feel anything except in the location where those particles are, where we are going to use them to trigger neural activity precisely. And uh, uh, because we're material scientists, we have been engineering those particles and also tailoring this uh, magnetic field conditions to them such that we can potentially uh, independently uh, activate one or the other uh, type of particle with different parameters of the field so you can start manipulating many different types of neurons or different regions of the nervous system. Uh, and we are currently uh, continuing to work on that. And we have also used those magnetic particles for a few other applications. Uh, one is to locally deliver drugs because since you have a particle that can um, heat up in the, in the magnetic field, you can attach a, a drug payload to its surface uh, using a, chemi- uh, a chemical bond that is sensitive to temperature. And then when you apply a field, the particle will get uh, hot and release its payload um, on demand. And another... Um, curious thing that uh, we found out that it was also possible to potentially use those particles to um, uh, manipulate aggregates of proteins. Uh, and for, we obviously, it's, uh, this is something that is relatively early stage. We have only seen it work in a dish, but if you're thinking about aggregated protein, for example, uh, amyloid beta, which is often forms plaques in the case of Alzheimer's, we, uh, it is possible to attach the particles to those aggregates and then apply field and disaggregate them to, into much smaller huh. uh, pieces. So it is potentially useful for people who study Alzheimer's pathologies to really um, study um, how the size of aggregates affects uh, the pathology and how you can um, manipulate it using by manipulating those aggregation states using those particles. But again, as I said, this is all very much work in progress. Hmm. Well, that's pretty clever. Uh, that's interesting. So 
let's see. Uh, it's hard to know where to start because yeah, there's there's a lot there, which is nice. And uh, so when you let's say you ingest inject these uh nano magnetic nanoparticles in somebody's brain in a certain region because you you don't want to provide you know whether it's medication or some type of treatment uh when you when you heat it up the, will those nanoparticles go beyond that region or will... so uh this is an excellent question and my short answer is i'm not sure yet Okay. And my long answer is that, that the longest experiments that we have done were three months long. And in those, over the course of those three months, we would still find our particles approximately where we have injected them. Uh, of course, uh, and we don't see significant damage at this point in terms of neural damage. And we don't see any uh, adverse, let's say, heat shock effects. But again, we haven't done the due diligence to really look at not three months, but you know, a year-long study and really see what happens to the particles. Because eventually, uh, the supportive cells of the nervous system will, of course, start to clear them. And there are cells uh, called microglia that will that come into the site where the particles are and start chewing them up. Uh, and I, I think eventually they will all get chewed up. So we don't okay. know how long it will last. So we know that after a month, our subjects are still can be stimulated and every, and they still um, have the magnetic particles where we need them. After three months, we can still do it. But can we do it after nine months? I don't know. Okay, gotcha. And, and I mean, the, the particles are benign, you said, so it's probably not that harmful to have them in your system anyways, even if they go, go beyond the isolation. Um, we, uh, we currently hypothesize that, but this is, again, something that will need to be thoroughly evaluated. Yes. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Before we can start dreaming about using them in any kind of therapeutic context. And how would you... Like, how do they work? So, like, how do you manipulate the neural system with those? Like, I understand, you know, they go in this, eject them in a certain region, and then you can heat them up. But then how does that affect the neural system? How does that uh, So, uh, neurons are wonderful because they already have their own heat-sensitive machinery. So, if you have a neuron, they have a membrane. Inside that membrane, they have... Uh, ion channels, and as I have been describing, that they among those ion channels, they have those that are responsive to heat. Those are the ones that are also responsive to capsaicin um, that uh, that is in habaneros. So when you uh, locally change the temperature, when you increase the temperature in the vicinity of those ion channels, they open up, and ion starts to flow into the neurons that increases the voltage across the neural membrane and results in action potential firing. So we can mediate neural activation through heat. Wow, that's cool. That's, I, that's interesting. Okay. I, I, I never, I mean, I knew that there's always an electrical component in the neural system. I just didn't know that it was quite that accessible always from, uh, from man-made materials. That's really interesting. And, uh, and, um, and, but so how do you and maybe this is a work in progress I'm sure it is is how do you finally t how do you finally tune um, the number of uh, or how do you find finally tune the signal so that you know if you're trying to provide some type of treatment that it's you know it's not 
flooding them with ions or it's not enough or so we calibrate uh, our experiments so we uh, model heat dissipation from our particles we actually know that quite well uh, we also model heat dissipation from a collection of particles mm -hmm. again this is something that we can do uh, before we can before without even needing any kind of experimental setup we can just uh, calculate it and then we can uh, of course set up an experiment where we can use a phantom where we can confirm that our calculation is indeed correct and calibrate the length of our magnetic field pulses and um, confirm that in fact the parameters of the particles uh, result in what we expect uh, to see from our calculations and if not we can adjust our uh, field uh, parameters accordingly. So it is um it is all very precise. The because the the particles are they're not random. They have very specific specific composition size. We engineer them all the way from atoms uh, and end up. And then all these magnetic fields again. Uh, all our uh, apparatuses are tunable, and we can apply a diversity of field conditions, different amplitudes and frequencies that we can really tailor uh, the electronics to the material. Hmm. Interesting. And I, and I just realized we're uh, pretty much out of time. This went fast. <laughs> I didn't realize usually, uh, I'm, usually I track that more closely. But, uh, okay, and um, before we end this, I, I have another question. This is kind of a, a broader question for, for a budding uh, scientist like yourself, people who are younger. You know what type of experiences um, or lessons, or you know something that you wish you wouldn't have done, that or you wish you would have wasted as much time with, or yeah, any uh, advice to have people who want to kind of follow in your footsteps. <laughs> you know, honestly speaking, I when I look back, I feel that everything worked out pretty nicely huh. in uh, in in retrospect because. I had a fundamental physics training, which was really helpful to uh, to then get into more applied uh, uh, fields of science. And then getting trained in material science was uh, uh, I was excited about it uh, because I was interested in how you know atoms build molecules and molecules build materials and how all of that can then turn into devices. So everything is made out of something. And I was curious about that. But uh, material science is sort of physics and material science have perfectly reasonable backgrounds to do what we do, but electrical engineering or mechanical engineering, um, chemical engineering would also be uh, perfectly reasonable starting points. But then it is important to complement that type of training with a training in uh, uh, basic biology. So if somebody is interested in interfacing devices uh, with neuroscience or neurobiology, they need to spend some time uh, communicating with real neuroscientists to really understand the problems and uh, understand how uh, to think about the nervous system. Uh, and of course, if it's any other type of biology, then uh, that uh, the same principles would apply. So I think... Combining engineering training with a biology training is a uh, a good way to go, uh, but you really, I don't think you want to do sort of 
I don't, you want to be serious about both, I would mm, say, okay. is that you want to have a serious approach to engineering and a serious approach to biology in order to really uh, design structures that are meaningful. And uh, in the case of my students, uh, my graduate students, they all not only do, let's say, synthesis or device design, they also all do their own biological experiments. So let's say a student who's working in a spinal cord probe will be doing all the design and all the characterization and then her own implantation and evaluation uh, of the device so she knows what she's engineering for. Uh, and I think that's important. Interesting. And I think, you know, it's interesting that you decide to strike out, strike your own path. You know, you wanted to do something that's meaningful and something that not a lot of people were doing at the time. And uh, that's that's hard to do, and it's kind of risky, but your background seemed ideal for it. Even when you, you start working in it, then everything starts to make sense. But when you just beginning and you're telling people that, you know, you did a PhD in optoelectronics and you're about to start postdoc <laughs> neuroscience, right. people start looking at you funny. Um, but uh, I think it's just important for everyone is to, uh, especially for young scientists, is to do exactly what they're excited about. Because if you do exactly what you're excited about, then you will do a better job and you will produce better results and ultimately that will make you more successful. So... I don't think anyone should ever be strategic about science. People should be mm-hmm. following their curiosity. Well, that's that's probably the best. That's the great advice right there. I think that, that's a good way to end the the podcast. To not be strategic. That's great. Uh, but so, Polina, definitely uh, appreciate your time and your thoughts. And what you're doing is really interesting. And it was uh, we we appreciate learning from you during this uh, short podcast. We. Uh, to learn about all your years of experience. Thank you very much for having me and uh, have a great day. And uh, I hope your listeners will enjoy this. Yeah, they definitely will. I, I did. So I think they will too. And, and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. And as always, I appreciate it. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Polina. Thank Bye. you.